And he let out the dove to see whether the waters had abated from the surface of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for its foot, and it returned to him to the ark, for the waters were all over the earth. Noah waited another seven days, and again let the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him, and a plucked olive leaf was in its bill. And Noah knew that the waters had abated from the earth. Neil, welcome to a, another episode of the Great Book Series on Made You Think. Yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be great. We don't even have Nat this time to distract us, so hopefully <laughs> it'll be a more focused episode. <laughs> um, we miss you, Nat. <laughs> we miss Nat. Yeah, we miss Nat. Nat is out in the wilderness and unable to join us from where he is. So we are going ahead with the Book of Genesis, uh, which is the second book in the Great Book series. If you missed the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, you can go back and check that out. Um, but yeah, this is the the next book in our in our series, and I think I think there's a lot of stuff to go on here in this. I had actually not read the Book of Genesis before. I had listened to Jordan Peterson's, I guess you know he calls it like the Old Testament series, but it's really just the Book of Genesis. And I'd read, I'd sorry, I'd listened to that years ago, and it was really informative. And you know, I'm not Christian, so I didn't grow up knowing much about these stories directly. Just sort of been what I'd understood from other people and i'm not jewish either obviously old testament stories a deal where you had you read this before yeah so i read this this last year uh i read this last year so this was my second read last year angela and i read the full torah so we did the first five books genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy i actually don't know the order for leviticus and numbers so i may have mixed those two up but those are the five how was the jordan peterson uh, biblical series. I've heard really good things, but I've never watched it. It's like quite a few hours. Yeah, I just I never watched it. I just listened to it on like like flights or whatever years ago. But it was because there's a podcast version too. Hmm. It's very like opinionated in the sense that it's I don't know how much of it you can say is like you know true in the sense that like this is what scholars are all thinking about the Book of Genesis. A lot of it is sort of tied to his concepts on psychology and how that links in to these old stories. I thought it was really good just for somebody who didn't have any experience with these things at all. I thought it was really useful. Like it made it more approachable. It also made it like he tied it because he ties a lot of his psychology insights to like evolution, you know, his whole like lobster stuff that he always talks about. So he was actually bringing some of that into the, into the stories as well. Like why these are, you know, these, these stories may not have been written until let's say 5,000 years ago, but that they are actually much more deeply ingrained stories from a psychology standpoint like he was bringing up that you know these are like humans can tell the story but animals may have like the animalistic version of these stories essentially in their in their mind like the in more intelligent ones potentially yeah it was just very interesting like he tied a lot of it to like it's like a intersection of like religion evolution and psychology is i would that's how i would describe this series it's not purely like religious in the sense of yeah. like maybe a religious scholar would describe those stories a lot differently. Mm-hmm. I always liked his secular appreciation for scripture as like it's just the oldest, most read, most studied text. So whether you are religious or not, it has a lot of value in it. And even right. reading the book of Genesis now for the second time as a secular person, I, I just I got something out of it every time I've read it. Uh, it's just like a very, very beautiful book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Even with the, you know, there are a few sections that it like 
it's a little boring where they kind of describe everyone's child and child and child and like child. And it's a little hard yeah. to follow. I, I wonder if that would have been easier to follow if somebody was speaking it. Uh, like, cause mm. the book of Genesis is derived, though it's believed to be derived from the oral tradition. Uh, and it was like committed to writing hundreds of years after it had been spoken orally is my understanding of kind of the history there. Uh, I wonder if with like a very charismatic speaker, would those sections have been more interesting in general, like how this whole thing would have been spoken? Cause I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but a lot of the paragraph breaks are in like odd places. And sometimes there are multiple ideas inside of a single paragraph. And I was reading a little bit about like how they break the chapters up and, you know, because it's from the oral tradition, uh, even the original written copies of it didn't have the chapters. The chapters are actually a more modern edition. Interesting. I didn't realize so it would, that. It would have been one long flowing story for the whole book. I also wonder uh, how much of it is so oral versus written is one sort of um, transformation potentially. The other one is translations. And like who yeah. wrote down the story, right? I mean, this is we were talking about this before, like the whole network state uh, stuff yeah. that Balaji is talking about, where like the victor writes the story essentially, right? And in the same way, like I wonder. This is true for Gilgamesh too, not just for the Bible, but like for any mm -hmm. of these old stories. I wonder how much of it gets like it's like a game of telephone that like every time it was told, it was like transformed in some way, right? So I just like I wonder like that part is interesting yeah. to me. Like how, what was the fidelity from one telling to the next? Like if you were the storyteller. Right. Yeah. Again, I'm not saying this is true just for the Bible. Probably true for any oral tradition or any oral story. It's like if I'm telling you the story and I see you react really well to like one section, I might play that up the next time I tell the story to somebody yeah. else <laughs> because I'm like that got a really good audience reaction. So I gotta like, you know, maybe double down on that and, and maybe emphasize that a little bit more. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's like that part's very interesting to me, and there's no way to really know, I guess, unless you find a copy, like anything that's written, you would know, mm -hmm. but you can't really go back and, you know, hear what people were how people were telling the story seven thousand years ago. So that's just like a speculation thing on my part. <laughs> Almost like the Darwinian, like which stories survived because they were like useful right. for their morals and they were like entertaining to the audience, and which ones kind of died out. Uh, right. Cause they suggested yeah, it's something probably similar. like an intersection. It's probably an intersection of entertaining and useful, right? Yeah. It's like, if it's entertaining and useful, it's entertaining. It's easy to remember and people want to tell it. And if it's useful, it has a benefit and people want to use it almost yeah. like made you think, right? I think like made you think <laughs> kind of threads that needle too. Made you think the Bible, oh, Gilgamesh, all the same category. Of media. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> The great stories of our time. <laughs> yes, things people will uh, definitely be consuming 10,000 years from now, for sure. <laughs> uh, God forbid. <laughs> uh, Clearly, our yeah, humility is why people listen to us. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah the, the copy that I had had really good footnotes. And then I went and like did a bit of supplementary reading as well. Last year, when Angela and I read this, we also read a few books by Karen Armstrong, who is uh, not familiar? Pretty. I, I don't really understand like uh, how an actual biblical scholar would feel about her. So, if anyone is listening who is an expert in this domain and you have strong opinions on Karen Armstrong, uh, I'd be curious to hear like what your take is. But as a layperson, I really appreciated her book. So we read the history of God, we read the Bible, and we like the Bible by Karen Armstrong, and then we read Muhammad and. There were a lot of pieces of color from those books that 
sort of colored my reading of Genesis because we read those before we read Genesis. And the biggest one that I'll just like use as a segue into discussing Genesis is that the Bible was not meant to be read literally. The literal reading of, uh, especially the book of Genesis in particular, because that's where you talk about like the creation of the world. The literal reading is actually a relatively new thing. And it is the product of Armstrong claims the scientific revolution where you used to have uh, allegorical readings of the Bible. And it was meant to be, you know, no one in their right mind would you consider reading it literally. Uh, and you were just looking for morals and so on. And this way, any of the, like, I'm doing air quotes, contradictions between different parts of the book were no matter because it was all allegorical anyway. And then as uh, science took greater foothold in Europe, uh, people started taking things more literally and then they started taking the Bible literally as well. And it's a very Western thing and in particular a very American thing, apparently. Uh, but knowing this and then going into the book of Genesis and being like, okay, so don't take any of this literally or don't take all of it literally. Then what are the morals and then like, what do you get out of it? And that kind of took away some of the distraction of like, okay, this is kind of weird. This doesn't really make sense. Why is he 800 years old? Um, and let me focus a bit more on, yeah, like, what can I take away from this for my life? So to your point about like allegorical uh, stories, like that 800 years old thing might be just like a way of saying he was really old. I don't know. It's not like I don't literally know 800 years old. Yeah, I, I'm not sure because I'm not sure like what things should be or shouldn't be taken literally. I think the point is more just like the whole thing doesn't have to be taken literally is how I yeah. understood it. Like I'm sure there are some pieces that need to be literal, like, I think it would be very hard to argue that the existence of Abraham shouldn't be taken literally, right? So, okay, so there's clearly some piece of this that is exactly as it is written. My guess is some of the lineage is probably literal, but yeah, maybe the age details, like that could be an I that could be one that was exaggerated over, you know, oral telling to telling to telling, right? Maybe the first time he was 110 and then he was 170 and so on. But yeah, pure speculation. And then uh, Jacob, like Jacob wrestling with God was a really interesting one as well in terms of like, he probably wasn't literally wrestling, but you know what it reminds me of? And I've never experienced this personally myself, but it reminds me of how people uh, describe certain psychedelic journeys, hmm. right? And I'm not, I'm not like saying like, oh, this is like what the Bible is or whatever, but yeah. the part where people like wrestle with their demons, essentially. Um, yeah you know, or like struggle with their demon, you know, they're kind of like going through hell before they, they get back to like, they resolve something psychologically. It almost yeah. seemed like that. And actually the funny thing was, when I was reading this, I had just finished listening to the, like Aaron Rodgers was on a podcast with Aubrey Marcus this past week. And they spent basically the whole time or at least half the episode talking about ayahuasca because they'd both done like ayahuasca uh, trips together essentially. And that was one of the things that they both described. And so I was reading this and then listening to that. And then I was like, wow, this actually kind of lines up really well with that. The way they're that, because they weren't describing it in religious terms. They were describing mm -hmm. it in like, like what it felt like. I know like, for example, Aaron Rodgers uh, was talking about how basically like where it sent him the first time he did ayahuasca was like that every bit of criticism or self doubt that he has ever heard about himself, whether that's like sports related or not, like just personal even, he had to like, like his brain basically accepted all of those things as true. 
And he was like, I was just like paralyzed that like all of the stuff that was ever said about me was true and that there's no way like, you know, that like I'm a good person, like basically just accepted that he's like a horrible person and like had this deep realization of that. And that's kind of like wrestling with like a demon, essentially. Right. Because like, obviously, that's not true that like all the bad things that you've ever thought about yourself are are true. Maybe there's like elements or pieces of that. Um, But then he said coming out of that, like. It's like he went really far down, but then coming out of it, it felt like he'd resolved a lot of, like, the insecurities related to those thoughts. And it was just very interesting seeing, like, the wrestling with God thing. Like, it was, like, all night he was, like, struggling, and then he, like, there was something with the hip, right, that he, mm-hmm. he like, lost, so he hit the bottom, and then he kind of came out of it, right? It's just, like, it was very cool seeing, like, the parallels between that. I didn't, I actually didn't pick up on that detail. I love that. The Okay, so for folks who have not read Genesis, there is a part where Jacob wrestles with a person who is unnamed, who right. it sounds like my footnotes actually didn't describe this person as God, but I think I've heard oh, elsewhere did. that. Yeah. My footnotes said, yes. Yeah. I, I've heard that interpretation that. Yeah. elsewhere actually. And when I didn't see it in my footnotes, I was like surprised that it was absent, but yeah, the interpretation is that Jacob is uh, wrestling with God. And at one point they touch hips and I think the word touch is just like a soft translation of like a hit. And he walks away injured and like for the rest of his life has this injury. Uh, almost has like a sign of like, you know, when you wrestle what he with demons. Through, what he struggled with. What he, yeah, yeah, you walk away with like inner scars that are visible to you. Right. That was my takeaway, at least, of the hip. And didn't Jacob have like some true demons, like with how he treated his brother and all of that? Yeah, so it's like... He had, I mean, he basically had demons in terms of self-doubts and, like, I'm sure he, you know, like, didn't he trick his father to get the blessing, right? I mean, there was a lot of, he's, he's like a dick in the early days of his life, for sure. <laughs> Why don't we give a little bit of structure for folks? So, basically, the book of Genesis follows, first, uh, the story of creation, God in the seven days, then Adam and Eve. And then the first, they have a word for this, and I was just looking at it. I think the word is toledot. Um, I don't think, yeah, toledot meaning these are the generations. Um, so the generations of heaven and earth. So then the main generations are uh, toledot of Adam, the toledot of Noah, of Shem, Ishmael, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and the bulk of the time is spent on Adam, Noah, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and it kind of wraps up with Jacob. Jacob's son is Joseph, who goes to Egypt and uh, kind of rules Egypt with the Pharaoh and sets the scene for Exodus. So that's the whole story uh, covered in Genesis. So when we're talking about Jacob, we're actually, of the 50 chapters in Genesis, I think the last like 10 or so are dedicated to Jacob, right? Yeah, it's a long, it's a long section of for him because he also had a very eventful life. Yeah, as well. With yeah, yeah. like the whole I thing mean, with uh, Rachel, right? Was his wife? Yep. Yeah, where he became a apprentice for seven years. Yeah. Uh, let me read a footnote here. So um, there is a scene where Joseph brings Jacob to the Pharaoh, and I'll read. This is not the footnote. This is actually the excerpt from Genesis. And Joseph brought Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, 
The days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the years of my life, and they have not attained the days of the years of my father in their days of sojourning. Uh, and the footnote, uh, this was like one of, one of the things I found to be very emotionally resonant. Uh, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob's somber summary of his own life echoes with a kind of complex solemnity, solemnity uh, against all that we have seen him undergo. He has, after all, achieved everything he aspired to achieve. The birthright, the blessing, the marriage with his beloved, progeny, and wealth. But one measure of the profound moral realism of the story is that although he gets everything he wanted, it is not in the way he would have wanted it. So for the birthright, yep. he steals the birthright. For the blessing, he steals the blessing. He marries Rachel, but only after he's forced to marry Rachel's sister. And then once he marries Rachel, she passes away in childbirth. Uh, his children, he seems to almost hate half of them. The one he yeah. loves is taken from him for like 20 years. Yeah, so he gets everything he wanted, but not the way he wanted it. Almost like a be careful what you wish for. Oh, yeah. And it's also like this story resonates with, I think, in, in terms of like a moral lesson so well, because it's one of those things where it rings, one, it rings so true. You can like feel that for, for when you read it. But the second thing is like, it kind of goes back to feel it like um, teaching you that the journey is as important, if not more important than actually the end goal. It's like you can get the end goal, but if you, you know, the, the journey is not the way that you wanted or that you do things that you would regret along, the, you know, to along that journey, you didn't actually achieve what you set out to achieve and you're going to regret it later. Like, sure. Maybe you got the end goal, but you, cause he did get his end goal, I guess all the things that he had wanted, but he had the regrets that you would, you know, regrets despite that, like that didn't override the, yeah. you know, it's not like the, um, the ends justified the means, let's say. The other thing I found interesting is like, again, because I've never studied scripture in an organized setting, I, this might be very obvious to those who have, but a lot of the interpretation is just left completely out of the book. Yeah. So throughout it was like every chapter is only like five or six paragraphs. They're pretty quick. Yeah. Most, they're pretty two short. Or three pages. Yeah. And then you can like kind of sit down and like, if I had someone co-reading with me, I could have probably discussed each chapter for, you know, an hour or more. Uh, cause a lot was actually probably what Bible study time. is. Yeah. Which just made me really right. wish I could do something like that actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a lot that happens and it's, it's stated so matter of factly, it'll just be like this. It's like, then this person did this. And it's like, wait, like that's yeah. actually a really big event. Like Jacob's feelings towards uh, his own yeah. life would be. Yeah. I mean, speculating on that. by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Actually the other, the other cool parallel is, um, so there's like, you've definitely heard of like the Bhagavad Gita before. Mm -hmm. But that is part of another book called the Mahabharata, which is like a very long epic. I think it might be longer than the Bible even. It's oh, wow. incredibly long. I read it in 2014. And the crazy thing is like the moral of that whole, one of the morals, I guess it's also complex like the Bible, but that is like one story, right? And the general, like generally accepted moral at the end of that story is exactly the same. Like, the good guys got what they wanted. They won the war that they were having against their cousins. And, you know, they, they won, but they basically lost everything in the process. And so it's like, 
it was like the same the same moral, which is like, sure, you got your goal, you won, but there's like a, the cost of winning. Like, was that worth it? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's just like the same moral that I think it was trying to to give to people is just like the ends many times don't justify the means, and like you have to think about that too. What do you think? Now we're getting into very stuff we don't know. But what do you think? Uh, <laughs> That's the point of the show. What, what's the what's the <laughs> redeeming arc for Jacob? I actually saw a redeeming arc for his brother and through his brother, there was a redemption for Jacob. So his brother forgave him when they mm-hmm. met Isu, right? Yep. The one he so he stole yeah. Isu's birthright and the blessing. Right. And then when they met, it looked like Isu was coming to like kill him because he brought all these people with him. Mm-hmm. And, and Jacob had kind of at that point surrendered himself. Like he was mm-hmm. kind of prepared to meet his fate at that point and it was very touching like you know even in a book like this it was so touching to see like his brother forgave him and through that forgiveness like i think that was jacob's redemption was that his brother forgave him i don't know if there's other like i don't know if i can see some other redeeming arc i think that was the main redeeming arc was like his brother Mm -hmm. forgave him and yeah. Yeah. And also his brother, the other thing is that his brother also ended up doing quite well. And it wasn't yeah. like he destroyed his brother by stealing his birthright. His brother actually seemingly had the same amount of, you know, wealth as he did. Yeah. Actually, that's one of the recurring themes is people who uh characters in Genesis who get cheated of a thing or robbed of a thing or mistreated end up doing quite well. The one that's very explicit is Joseph who his brothers sell him into slavery, and then he goes to Egypt, ends up in prison, and eventually ends up being Pharaoh's like right-hand man, effectively running all of Egypt. And Pharaoh at one point says, the only difference between you and me is I have the throne. So he's made it all the way to the top of Egypt. And uh, when his brothers come back and realize he's actually alive and in this great position, they also submit themselves the way Jacob did. The way Jacob does to Isu, yep. Yep. And he says, like, you guys meant this as an evil, but God meant it as a good. So you don't need to apologize. So it's basically like your biggest struggles and your biggest sort of like getting cheated, right? Or getting hurt or, you know, life being like some big struggle that life gave turned out to be like a blessing in disguise for them. I mean, I could see this being like stories like this, giving people a lot of patience when they're going through hardship. Because you can just yep. reread the story and be like, okay, like, you know, when Joseph was in prison, the first person who he helped, who promised to help him, forgot him. So he ended up staying in prison even longer because he was forgotten. And like, that's like, you kind of get this hope, you're almost out, and then you're not. And then like multiple more years right. of your life go by. Yeah, I think if I was in like a very tough position and I was like reading this, like, this is, especially the way it's written allows you to fill all the gaps and project so much of yourself right. into it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And then the other thing is that this was the one story that people knew for so long, right? Like the, or sorry, the one book that people knew for so long. So it's, it was like universally useful for people. Yeah. That was why I picked it up last year. Yeah, I was going to ask what motivated you to go down that religious rabbit hole? A few things. Curiosity, obviously. Yeah, the, the most mundane reason, and then there's a slightly more interesting reason. The most mundane reason is just like, this is the most read book of all time. It's like the most read story of all time. Um, so I think it's important as like a citizen of the earth to be like, okay, billions of people have read this. 
over a billion people like believe it to be the truth of the universe. So it's important to be acquainted with what's in it and uh, what it means. And the second reason is we don't need to discuss this too lengthily here, but I would actually like to be religious. So I'm like reading all of these now. And uh, yeah, I, I just love reading them. I would love to also believe them. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very, what's very interesting to me is I now know a handful of people who are like about my age, give or take two or three years, who were either raised religious or like agnostic and then had a very long atheist phase who are now sort of in the same, like they're going to church, they're doing Bible study, they're like really studying scripture and trying to become believers as adults. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's so sort it's of like, who, yeah, it's the counter trend no, to our atheism. It's just 10 years later. Yeah. I think it's also like the God of atheism uh, yeah. also isn't a solid God. So people are mm-hmm. like less, you know, the faith in that God has also gone down. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to describe, but I've seen the exact same trend. And I felt the same, you know, myself as like I was I don't I was never like a hardcore atheist in the sense that like, oh yeah, God definitely doesn't exist, but like now I'm much more I don't know. I wouldn't put myself in any particular like religion like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I believe. Yeah. But it's like do I believe that there is more than what, you know, uh, what we can explain by rationalism absolutely yeah yeah i couldn't put it into like an organized religion yet i maybe don't know enough about any of the organized religions to to say like this is what i you know would follow but yeah it's like i'm i think we're all kind of like on our own spiritual like learning path and yeah i felt the exact same you know kind of like curiosity or pull towards religion that that you have my my theory on this at least for myself personally is as a kid your parents and like when you go to school, people give you very certain answers about things. And you almost, especially like growing up learning science and math and these things, you get this expectation that like things are certain. And at least for me, when I face uncertain things, I was like, well, that means they must be wrong. And a big part of like the last, I don't know, 13, 14 years of like coming online has been like, oh, actually, we don't really know this to be so sure. We don't know that to be so sure. And like a lot of the things that I used to think were actually rock solid past the foundation are less so. Like one that I was reading about more recently was like theories around the origins of life on Earth and how Mm -hmm. organic matter turned into single cellular uh, organisms. And like that jump, like there's more there every year, actually, and it's pretty interesting. We can throw some stuff in the show notes. I don't know it by heart enough to reiterate it here. But when I first read it, it was much weaker than I expected it. And my initial reaction was, okay, so this is actually an equally large act of faith to believe this as it is to believe like an it's, alternative. It's like Nat's, it's Nat's theory about dark matter, right? It's like Nat's theory that this is just a, just as made up as any other thing. <laughs> like that yeah. there's not really evidence of what this is, that this is used to make the equations work essentially. <laughs> Oh, it's just like a free right? and it's like I think with yeah, and I think like with evolution, like uh, you know where I'm going with that is if you take evolution to be true, which I generally do, you you go far enough back and you're just like, how did this whole thing start? It's like yeah. the chicken and it's honestly the chicken and egg problem. First mover, <laughs> like yeah. like literally extrapolated all the way up. It's like, well, what came first? Like, how did that? How did that first bit of life start? And even if you go with like the 
the alien life theory, right? Where it's like, oh, something crashed on Earth that brought organic matter. You still are left with the same problem. Like, where yeah. did that come from? Then it's like the whole like turtles all the way down thing. Yeah, you're totally right. And there's a book I read actually. Uh, I forget who re- somebody recommended it to me. Like way like a long time ago like this is almost 10 years ago i read this probably right after college called rare earth and it's i only read it one time and i still have it and it it sticks with me because it changed my mind so much on extraterrestrial life not that it doesn't Mm. exist i still think it you know I, i would bet on that being true over not being true but it made me way less certain in my belief so basically this entire book the whole like premise of the book is they go through each and every sort of statistical anomaly that led to earth so it's like it led to earth as it currently is so they go from like the formation of the milky way to the formation of the solar system to the form uh, position of where earth is from the sun but also not too far from the sun they go into the early collision that may have led to the moon and that kind of took a chunk out of where the pacific ocean is that is another thing that like was a super rare event that you know is not necessarily happening the way that it did. Then the fact that the moon is the exact size that it is, where it exerts tidal forces, but not so big that it has like a massive gravitational pull on Earth and not so small that it doesn't really affect Earth. Just like so many random things that they each chapter is like one additional thing down the chain. And then you're like, oh, and then all the extinction events and how that like didn't actually completely destroy all life so early on right in the process of when life started so it just like goes down the chain and you like start doing the math of like okay this is like a one in a billion this is a one in a billion this is one in 10 million one in seven million and then you're like holy shit this is such a small number now that you actually think i mean of course the universe is like infinite so you do the math it's still like oh there should be life on other places like there probably are other situations where this actually worked out the way that it worked out here And if it is infinite, then there's infinite situations where it worked out the way that it did. But it does make you question, like, the Fermi paradox or, like, think about the Mm. Fermi paradox and be like, maybe those other successful attempts are just so far away that they're effectively not in the same universe as us. So it just, like, makes that number get a lot smaller of, like, the odds that life exists. It's like, yeah, it does probably exist, but does it exist in a close enough physical realm that it's ever possible to even come in contact with them i don't know what i don't know it just like makes you think a little differently (laughs) yeah uh i don't know what's sadder to be like totally alone or to be so isolated from the others that you think you're alone but you're not to like mistakenly think you're alone yeah i mean i would still operate from the assumption that you're not alone it's just that like does like does it affect does it affect us in the same way like will we ever have like interspecies uh contact in that same way I mean, then the other the other question could be too is like what the question of like what is life is also very interesting. That like we all we operate from the assumption of carbon based life forms, yeah. but is that true? Like, does that have to be what life is, or can life be like I don't know? Can a star be alive? Like, I I don't know. Like, I personally would not know. Yeah, I don't think any of us know really. Like, what uh, what the actual like space of life possibilities are? Like, we just know what worked on Earth. Yeah. Yep. A really good book we have to do at some point is called Vehicles. I think it's Valentino Bradenberg, I think. But the book is... uh, This looks good. Yeah, it's awesome. You got the purple one, right? Valentino, yeah. yeah. 
So what the book is about is you design these vehicles that are very elementary and they get increasingly complex and then you make observations about the vehicles as though you didn't know that you had designed them. So for example, you have a vehicle that has two motors that each power these wheels and the motors are tied to a sensor and the sensor is like a light sensor. And the brighter the light that hits a sensor, the faster the motor that it's tied to will move. So imagine you have two motors in the back, one on the left, one on the right, and you have sensors in the front on the left and the right. And you have a light source that is askew. And the right sensor, which is closer to the light, gets a brighter light. So it's the motor that it's tied to, which is on the back left, speeds up. And it actually turns the vehicle towards the light source. And then both of the lights, both of the sensors at the front, are now getting equal amounts of light. So both of the motors get equal amounts of power and the vehicle charges the source of light. And if the vehicle is big enough, presumably breaks it. And the author says, oh, one could observe that this vehicle hates light. And when it sees it, it aggressively charges it and destroys it. And then it's in the dark. And then it just moves around aimlessly until it finds the next source of light, turns towards it, charges it and destroys it and repeats it. And you're now making human inferences about a machine as though it has like a set of morals and preferences and needs and wants. And uh, yeah, the machines get increasingly complex and their behaviors get increasingly complex throughout the book. And it's just a really fun read. I just, yeah. I, I just bought it. I just bought We should do it. <laughs> as you were talking. <laughs> I just. <laughs> we should do it. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's so cool. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we're so far off Genesis now, but it's like a very, I mean, it is actually, no, 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 we're not, we're not actually that far off Genesis now that I think about it because it's, it ties back to creation, right? And like, yeah. it's like, this is another, this is an explanation, like to what you were saying is like the knowledge is a lot less solid than I think I thought, or you thought when we were like in high school or something that this is just like, that also requires faith and this requires faith. Yeah. The, the piano outside is going crazy. It's almost, I almost want to move the mic. I can like slightly hear it now. I can slightly hear it now. It's I not, almost it's want nothing, to move the mic uh... so people can enjoy how good this guy is. Uh, he's like seriously <laughs> there's a There's a street festival happening right now. So. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, I, I think like to your point about like, when I was asking you where the curiosity came from, I think there are a lot of people that feel that way right now. It's just, and, it, and it's interesting too, because I think the... The other thing that, unfortunately, religion has, and I haven't experienced this directly, but it's just like observing other religions, because um, my family, you know, I grew up like in a Hindu house, right? So it's our, like, we are kind of the one large religion that already operates this way. But most of sort of like organized religion kind of has gone with a literal meaning, um, especially with modern Christianity in America. And uh, like... Basically, they make it so that if you are scientific, you are basically not religious. And if you're religious, you're not scientific. Like they've made it like this dichotomy um, that those are those things are in opposition to each other. When I actually don't personally think that that's the case at all. I actually think that they can be completely aligned with each other and they don't have to be, you know, this sort of dichotomy. I think it's only a dichotomy when you think about it from a power standpoint, like which organized group has control, right? I think is like where they become opposed to each other. But in terms of the tools, like religion as a tool, science as a tool, they are like as a tool for understanding the world, both of them. 
um, and they're not opposed to each other at all. They actually can flow really well together. The, the framing for this that I've liked is science is the how and religion is the why. And like, no matter how advanced science gets, it, like, it can never answer the why. At least right. beyond the very basic, like, well, you want to have offspring, so they can 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 have offspring. Yeah, it's also, I mean, uh, I think Peterson has talked about this, or if I'm taking somebody else's idea, I could be wrong. But I think this came up in, in one of his early talks. Maybe it was in the, the Bible talk. Around, like, why subjective experience even exists. If the goal is just to, like, you know, have offspring and, like, whatever, like, you don't need the consciousness. Like, why Like why do you have this personal subjective experience of life? And it's just, like, it. evolution doesn't really explain how that that's actually beneficial because arguably it's not beneficial right because you make like worse decisions sometimes many times i don't want to say sometimes many times we make worse decisions because it's like oh i felt like doing this or like i felt like eating that cookie versus like doing that or i didn't feel like going out that night you know it's like if the goal is literally just like reproduce 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 and extend out like we we would be operating a little bit differently i feel like so yeah, I don't know. That's an, always an interesting question, too, in terms of the why. And that's what religion talks about. But yeah. I don't that's something you don't really get from science. I don't know if you could get like there isn't really a scientific explanation for that because it's subjective too. Yeah. like the why is <laughs> subjective. I think we yeah. have the scientific why, which is just to reproduce. And that's like the extent of it. And then everything right. beyond that, because yeah. you don't die after you have your last child and you don't die after you can no longer have children. So there has to be some continued why. At least yeah. maybe you did die in a state of nature because you know you get left behind or something. But nowadays, that's no longer the case. Uh, something yeah. that popped in my head: Have you? I actually haven't seen this movie, but have you seen the opening scene for? I think it's Idiocracy. Uh, yeah, I've seen the movie. It's a great movie. That's the one. Yeah. If I'm thinking correctly, that's the one where uh, the one where they're talking about where it's like the two, like the couple that's like being smart about their yeah. their reproductive decisions <laughs> versus like the guy who's just bothering like tons of children. Yeah, you know? yeah. we should yeah. throw that in the yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah. That, it's, it's a great, great scene and great movie. <laughs> that was very relevant to the. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I guess somebody. So the the steel man thing, or like what somebody would say in response, would be that the success of those offspring would be determined by potentially like, you know, you're saying like you don't die after you have your last child. You could say like those children would be more successful if you don't die after having your last child. Right. So it's like you're, so you could still kind of lump that into the same evolutionary argument. It's like, well, because of that, we don't die after our first child because, or our, you know, our last child, because we are helping make those offspring more likely to reproduce as well by us sticking around. But it's like, yeah, it's like, but then you're back to like the turtles all the way down kind of problem, which I think that's where, that's where like religion attempts to create an answer. Um, It is also, I didn't know about the not interpreted literally thing. That was, that was new to me, but that's a modern thing. There were two things I really- I think we talked about it on the last episode a little bit, but I did not realize that. Yep. And for anyone who didn't listen to the last episode, the way this came to pass was a lot of the early scientific research in Europe was done by religious people to prove God, to prove aspects of religion that they felt could be backed by science. So they were starting to uh, create more literal backing. And eventually the two stories diverged and it sort of came to pass for some time that science and religion were at odds. And the habit that we sort of took away from this period of using science to prove religion was to take religious texts literally. 
Um, and yeah, Armstrong basically says like that didn't happen before the year like 16 something. And to if you went back to like the year 600 and talked to somebody, they would be like, yeah, why would you ever do that? That makes no sense. Um, I do wonder though why that like I haven't at least uh, I was raised Muslim. I haven't seen as much of that in the Islamic community, and like you know, the Middle East was the center of science for a couple hundred years. I'd be curious if there's any vestige of that. That's a good point. You know? That's a good point. I wonder if... Yeah, that's actually a great point. I have no idea. Uh, maybe we should find something and put it in the show notes, yeah. too. Because that's a great question. Because you're totally right. Like, I wonder if somehow in that culture, like science and religion were part of the same team somehow, right? Like, science was like doing glory to God as well, not like in opposition... I, I actually don't know. Because, yeah, because you don't have the same... Or maybe the stories aren't as prominent. Like, you don't have the same, like, Galileo going to, uh, you know, and being imprisoned for... Uh, or was it Copernicus? Or one of them. I forget who was I think who was imprisoned for, like... Yeah, for disputing the... Uh, what is it? Not the helio... Yeah, the heliocentric yeah. universe. You know, let me yeah. pull up my... I remember reading something that that story... That argued that story was kind of bullshit. And I... Don't remember the details of it, but I'm gonna take I love it. 10 Those seconds. are my favorite. Those are my favorite where history is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Nat told me that one time in like 2014, and I was like, wow, that is really dumb. And then now I'm like completely on team history is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Balaji had that chapter, the title, I loved it. He was like, if the news is fake, what do you think of history? Um, yeah, just well, the title Taleb said was so that. good. So said that too, oh, really? as well. So <laughs> said that as well. Uh, yeah, but it's. So I used to think it was like, oh, it's in a book. Like, it can't just be fake. <laughs> oh, man, this description of the Galileo thing is really long. So we'll just throw in the show notes later. I don't have time to skim it while we're talking. Okay. Um, the uh, Yeah, the I guess another thing I definitely wanted to talk about was the, uh, the Adam and Eve story is so interesting. Yes. What about it? Just so many elements of it. Like that one that there was this Eden, right, where man was not really aware like sort of pre-consciousness almost and living in bliss. And then there was something that, again, this is like back to like a, this is, I literally have never done a psychedelic at this point of this recording in my life. And I go back to a psychedelic interpretation of the Bible in this, in this chapter where it's like eight of the tree of life, right? Like I don't, I don't know of another, like or tree of knowledge, sorry, not life. That's the one they didn't eat from, eat from. Uh, the tree of knowledge was the one that they did eat from the apple, and it's just so interesting. Like, what did they eat that made them conscious? <laughs> like, that was my first thought. It was just like, what is this tree? <laughs> doing the literal read, and then the serpent thing is very yeah. interesting too. The serpent thing is very, very interesting as well. Like, you know, I I wonder if that is um, obviously it's a symbol, right, of something else. Like, obviously, you know, it's a well. I guess if you're viewing it in uh, literal, then you might not view it as a symbol. But the way I was reading it was viewing it as a symbol. And I wonder if that animal would change in, in different cultures to be like whatever animal is viewed as like, you know, the wicked one, essentially. I do think, though, and this is from Jordan Peterson, not from me, that the snake has like a unique hold in human psychology. So he spent a lot of time on that in his oh. in his series on or his episode on Adam and Eve. And he's talking about that snakes are kind of like a primal fear for tree-dwelling 
mammals essentially or like mammals who would like stay off the ground to sleep which is kind of what they at least think uh what we evolved from would have done and it's like you know why did we go into trees to sleep at night and it's because there's scary things on the ground that can kill you that don't come up into the tree as often and it's like yeah it's just like the snake is almost like a representation of like the worst fear of something that could come in and surprise you. Do you know of other cultures that have different, like worst, uh, animals? <sighs> no, I don't think so. Actually. I know, like I'd read a lot about like native American cultures and they don't, I don't know what they view as the worst animal, but I know like they have special respect for like coyotes as being like almost like the trickster type animal. Like it's good and bad. Like the coyote is often the butt of the joke in these old stories, but it's also like the coyote is like a semi-god hmm. in these stories as well. And then the bear, they had a lot of respect for bears. That was not the worst animal at all. Okay. My theory on bears is kind of interesting. Like I actually think the reason why they were so respected is because a lot of what they do, actually humans can learn from. Hmm. Like, oh, they're finding berries or honey and like whatever. We, would eat, we can eat that too. So you could follow a bear and figure out like where sources of food might be basically everything they eat like humans could eat too for the most part like fish we would eat fish i think they eat more bugs than probably we would eat but like they are if you follow them they're probably a really good way to like find human food that is very nourishing because bears have very high caloric requirements as well i wonder also like a snake as far as like animals on the land go a snake is one we have virtually no physical attributes in common with, whereas a bear is almost like That's true a too. really big hairy person walking around. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's almost like yeah, this no, that's actually a great point. Visual affinity where you're like, oh, like that was once a person. You can almost construct a story of a you know a big hero who was larger than life who then became the bear and right. Whereas the snake is like that's a great point, and also the way that they move. Also, the way that they move or any mammal moves is a lot easier for your brain to interpret, I feel like, yeah. than like, I don't know if you've ever seen like a snake, you know, like kind of move and stuff. It just like doesn't make sense yeah, yeah. in the same way because they don't have like legs that they're running on that you can kind of see. You're just like, this is weird. Yeah. Like, how is this working right <laughs> now? <laughs> yeah, pretty- so it's also probably part, probably like fear of the unknown. Uh, combined with the actual danger, right? Of yeah. like, if you get bit by a poisonous snake, especially at that time, it's like, what do you, you know, you're kind of fucked. Yeah. Actually, and if you were around black bears, then they wouldn't even be that dangerous to you unless you were being aggressive no. towards them. Yeah. I also had a highlight in this section that I thought was interesting, but it was in my footnotes, which is um, in the Hebrew, so it's discussing Eve's name, and it basically is saying, in the Hebrew here, the phonetic similarity is between Hawa, Eve, and the verbal root Haya, to live. It has been proposed that Eve's name conceals very different origins, for it sounds suspiciously like the Aramaic word for serpent. Which I thought was very interesting. So it's both similar to the Hebrew word to live, and you know, you're taking for the tree of life, tree of knowledge, and also the serpent. Um, so translation is very lossy there, because like from the word Eve, you just would never gather any of these things. You need knowledge of Aramaic and Hebrew uh, to get that like double, triple meaning. Actually, one other thing from that same section that was, uh, I just, I, I made a note of this, and it's like an interesting question. It goes, so this is from the same section. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And 
my highlight there, I made a comment, which is, who is us? <laughs> like, one of us, right? Like, has become like one of us. One of us would imply multiple. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, monotheistic religion is so explicitly monotheistic. It's like, who is the us? Well, right? It's just, like, a very interesting... Yeah. It's, just a, it's just, like, a highlight where I was just like, it, I wonder if this is either, like, a translation issue or if this is, like... You know, I don't know, like, this is, like, an older book in, in the sec- sense of, like, this comes from a polytheistic sort of pagan tradition that then, you know, the story got moved into the, the Old Testament. Well, the next chapter, uh, or one of the next chapters, the first thing that happens is uh, there are, like, these divine men who come to Earth and then, like, they know, so they, you know, sleep with the human women. Let me find the... Um, I remember that. Yeah, so here it is. Ancient aliens, man. Yep, this Ancient aliens. This whole passage, this is the footnote, obviously. This whole passage is obviously archaic and mythological. The idea of male gods coupling with mortal women whose beauty ignites their desire is a commonplace of Greek myth. The stories may have a common source in the Hittite traditions of Asia Minor. Yeah, gods... So you don't think it's aliens? <laughs> <laughs> um... But I do think it's interesting because it, it sort of suggests because they're that they're the messengers throughout Genesis as well, right? The angels who come and they like guide you along your way and they protect you along the way. So there's there is this like I don't know what the right word for it is, but like an echelon of like godly or god adjacent or you know not maybe not adjacent. There's but, a god yeah. and then there's like the, the like next level below that. One of the things that I... There's actually, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, there's quite a bit that I got from the Karen Armstrong books. So I'm really curious if there are people here who know more about this, what they think of her. Because another thing that she had mentioned in the book, the Bible, uh, for the piece about the Old Testament, was that the God of the Hebrew Bible, it was believed that, like, he was one of many gods, and he was their god. So he was the god for this area, for these people, but there were other gods. Yes. And it was descended from a polytheistic uh, tradition, and it became monotheistic over time. So I wonder if there are vestiges of that like this. That's a, a great point. And then the other, I guess, related thing is that, like, it was almost like when a one tradition, or sorry, one region fought against another region... They would both be appealing to their own gods, right? And then the one who won that battle would be, like, now the supreme god of that. It's almost like a tournament. And if you just, like, win enough, to, right? It's almost like you're you're almost going... The, the like, better god is shown by who won, essentially. <laughs> it's like, oh, our god was more powerful than your god. It's kind of like, you know, it's like... Uh, if two kids are fighting and it's like, oh, my dad yeah. is like stronger than your dad or something. Yeah, we did a lot of that. Yeah. When we would get bullied in like middle school, we would make stories up about like our dads and their dads. Yeah, right. No, but it's like kind of like the same idea. Yeah. It's like then if you won, yeah, it's like you get you brought glory to like your group essentially. Um, but I wonder if to your point, like that part is just like a vestige of an earlier thing that was yeah that was there. I'd be curious. I, we, sh- we should do a bit more um, of reading on this because we're doing Exodus next. So actually these open questions we can come back to. Yeah. So open questions, uh, I already wrote down Galileo bullshit question mark. Second one is <laughs> one of many gods. Oh, it's kind of nice to have like a series because then we can just like leave these open questions and come Revisit back to it. them. Um, 
Yeah, the other thing in the Adam and Eve story that I just thought was interesting and funny was the dude just like th Adam throws Eve just under the bus right away. Oh yeah, very <laughs> like, nice. God just comes fact, in yeah. and questions. And Adam's just like, nope, she, she I only did it because she made me. She made it. <laughs> oh, uh, no, no personal responsibility whatsoever. <laughs> just. <laughs> and then the curses were very interesting too, right? Like the curses were interesting because the curses are all tied to the knowledge of like one self-awareness and then also the knowledge of the future. So like, Women know that childbirth is painful. I mean, that's kind of like the curse that was given to them was childbirth. And they have a knowledge of that from an early age onwards. Men are kind of cursed to work this, you know, earth that isn't as fruitful as, you know, it's not this land of abundance like Eden is where there's no need to work. Everything's just kind of there. And it's like that is also tied to like self-awareness and knowledge of like, okay, I need to plan ahead that I'm going to have food for the winter and like have food. Like you didn't have that problem in Eden, right? Eden was just abundant, pure abundance, mm -hmm. pure utopia. So it's interesting that's like tied to the, the tree of knowledge. It's like not just, you don't get just the benefits of knowledge and, and self-awareness. It comes with these curses that you didn't have to deal with before. You, you're no longer in this blissful state of not knowing. It's also kind of like going from a child to an adult mm. in some ways too. Yeah you're provided for and then you have to provide I, I did find it interesting throughout like a couple things that surprised me the first time I read Genesis was that fertility and land were basically the main ways that God gifted and punished because when you were being gifted it was like yeah this land yes. will be yours and you will your seed will be as numerous as the dust and then yeah when you were being punished it was like the favored wife would be barren or you know so on the land would be taken away which I suppose makes sense. I mean, then there was the famine as well, so. I mean, I guess those were the forms of wealth. Yeah. That, like, that was, yeah. Which I, I guess, mean, that was, that was the today, those would still be the greatest punishments. To not have, yeah. like, a nation of your own and to not be able to have children. The other thing that surprised me the first time I read Genesis was that uh, these were very complex characters. I just, I had... Maybe this was very naive, but I'd always just assumed that they would be like without fault and every single part of their lives would be like exemplary and throughout. But it was actually like very complex narratives and like things that even now, like having read it, I don't entirely know like how to reconcile. Like one of them is um, one that I was thinking about is uh, Abraham when uh, his wife is unable, when he and his wife are unable to conceive, he has a child with, they call her the slave girl, so I guess, I'm not sure if she was a slave or s servant or something. Um, I think her name was Hagar, but he has a child with mm, the slave yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And then when the child is like, I think 16 or so, like in his teens, God uh, gifts Abraham and Sarah uh, by like they have a kid and it's like an improbable kid because uh, Abraham is a hundred years old and Sarah is ninety years old and she's old yep and they're able to yeah. have a kid and the f when Sarah and they named the kid I think Isaac or Ishmael I think so I think you're right yeah. it was Isaac, Isaac yep so yeah Isaac means to laugh um, and when Sarah sees the slave girl's Hagar's daughter laughing uh, Hagar's son laughing. And I think he was Ishmael. I'm getting my names wrong. There were a lot of names. Um, she says, okay, actually, my son is the one who is to laugh. And I don't want to see the other son laughing. So asks Abraham 
to sort of set off the slave girl and her son. And Abraham consults God, and God says, yes, you should, like, kick them out, listen to your wife, and uh, set, them, set them away. And he gives them some water and basically just, like, tells them to go. And the next passage is Hagar and... Pretty sure it's Ishmael. Yep. yep. Yeah, okay, Hagar and Abraham's Ishmael. Abraham's son, yep. yep. Um, yeah, and as they're walking away, they run out of water, and then they're, like, very desperately crying to God for help. That scene, I thought, was very complex. I was like, okay, like, you've now basically said, like, someone that you're taking care of, you're now releasing with very little, and sort of in this, what sounds like a fairly inhospitable uh, setting. And it's only by Ishmael's, like, pleas to God that God says, okay, here's a well, and now you'll have some water, and you won't die in the wilderness. Um, yeah, that was very complex to me. Like, I still don't exactly know what to make of that. Like, was that a good thing by listening to Sarah? Was that this, like, wrong that he should have never had a kid with Hagar? Like, there's, it felt very tangled. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No, same, I mean, same thing. It was super tangled up, and I guess kind of keeps emphasizing the point that, like, life is not black and white either. Like, that was something that this book was not. Like, it was not, or, yeah, at least Genesis was not. It was not preachy in any way, shape, or form. Because it just presented events and left you to kind of make your interpretation. And then you could also see how God judged those mm -hmm. events. But also the thing with God that's interesting in, at least in Genesis, that, I, I mean, I haven't read beyond that, so I don't know. But at least in Genesis, that was very interesting, is you can actually look at God's actions and be like, yeah, that was actually a just, you know, thing that God did or not. Like, there's not, it's not like a perfectly logical, like, it's not a child story in the sense that like, oh, this person did this good thing and that led to this reward, like with 100% certainty. It was like, sometimes bad things happen to good people or something happens that it wasn't their fault in any way, shape or form, but things just happen. So I just thought it was like, it was like almost more realistic. Yeah. One thought I had actually in that section that I thought was, I don't, I don't know. I could see this. This is almost too, it would be too controversial to ever actually happen, mm -hmm. but you could definitely picture like a game of Thrones like series. Oh my God. About like all the events that were in here. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of yeah. like crazy shit that happened. Like the thing where I forget their names, but like the, uh, two daughters, like sleeping with their father, Oh, with lot, yeah. like getting him drunk and sleeping with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just, like, so many things that happen where you're like, oh, this would actually be a crazy TV show. It would be... Like, a crazy series. I, mean, I would want to go back and reread East of Eden now that I've read Genesis twice. Mm, yes. Because when I had last read East of Eden, I hadn't read... They had assigned some, like, supplementary Bible reading with with East of Eden because I read it for school, but I didn't read it. <laughs> uh, I was a bad student. East of Eden is one of my favorite books on your recommendation, yeah, by the way. I had never read it till you told me about book. it. And then I read it like 2014, 15, something it's like so that. It's so beautiful. It's so yeah. good. You know that movie is cursed, right? They've been trying to make a movie <laughs> for East of Eden for a long time, and every time something happens to like stop production. Really? I did not know that. Like, I think there have been three separate attempts. What? There's been like three separate attempts. Like the most recent one, in the most recent one, Jennifer Lawrence was supposed to play, um, what was her name in the book? Uh, Kathy. Is Kathy, the, Kathy's like the yeah. woman who is like... Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 So she was, yeah. it was supposed to be Jennifer Lawrence. Wow. Like, she would have been so good. But I don't so think that good. movie is actually happening. Oh, she would have been, been so great. good. 
Hold on, I'm gonna see East of Eden, Jennifer Lawrence. So they did make one in the fifties with James. Yeah, Dean. great. Okay. I've never seen it though. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Yeah, it says Steven Spielberg and Jennifer Lawrence were reportedly interested in bringing these Steinbeck movies to the screen, starting with East of Eden. But I think there's like some lawsuit going oh, on man. about who actually owns the movie rights. Uh, like who which one of Steinbeck's like descendants actually owns the rights it's like the movie isn't oh John Stein this is 2017 John Steinbeck's stepdaughter wins 13 million in suit over movie rights I mean the family should absolutely get their due like there's no question about that but also like Spielberg and Jennifer Lawrence like come on let's like get a like what I know (laughs) (laughs) it would be a great movie it would be an amazing movie it would be tough also, to it's make not a, a book that a lot of people have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true. It would be a complex yeah. movie to make, but um, it's also not a book that I think a lot of people have read, which is which yeah. is interesting. I like because like I'll mention it to people as like as like my one of my favorite books, and they'll be like, "Oh, who's the author?" And you say John Steinbeck. They're like, "Oh, I've read of Mice and Men" or like some other you know Steinbeck yeah. novel, but not this one. Like this one is, I think, certain people who have read it love it. I've, I've never met somebody who read it who's like, "Yeah, that book sucks." Yes. Um, but I just it's not like his most popular book well yeah because you get uh, most people get assigned of Mice and Men in high school when people who read of Mice and Men or Grapes of Wrath when I recommend John's The East of Eden to them and they say they don't like Steinbeck I tell them this quote I just always have it in my back pocket it's uh, John Steinbeck about East of Eden I think everything else I have written has been in a sense practice for this because <laughs> he, he says like in his journals because I think after he passed they like found a lot of his journals um, that like writing East of Eden nearly killed him like it was just like he it was just this oh, all-consuming wow. work it has everything in it I've been able to learn about my craft or profession all these years yeah. I mean it's like a perfect, it's book. perfect book last thing from me on Genesis one thing that I don't know if this is a cross-cultural thing, but it's very prominent in Islam. Uh, and they basically had it uh, verbatim in Genesis. And I'll read a quote from Genesis. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread till you return to the soil. From For from there were you taken, for dust you are, and to dust shall you return. And uh, I just always found it to be very beautiful. It's like everything that you do and have and everything like it came from dust and it will return to dust yeah i think it's absolutely beautiful sentiment as well i so one thing that i couldn't reconcile or this is not like from genesis this is just uh i had this thought before genesis um so there's this dust to dust or soil to soil kind of idea but then like in the abrahamic religions they bury their dead so how do you reconcile those two things well what is there to be reconciled there like like, I guess you're trying to, pres- at least as far as I understand burial, at least in the Christian tradition, you're, like, preserving the body for, like, the resurrection mm. or, like, the, you know, it's, like, I guess maybe that's not true in uh, Judaism, but, or and I don't know about Islam if that's true or not, but at least as I understood uh, burial, I could be completely off on that, so that's just my own interpretation. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Have you thought about that at yeah, all? Yeah, so... Uh... I want to quickly fact check because at this point I'm only talking, speaking from like experience of what I observed as a child that I have never since like checked. 
But as I remember it, in Islam, an Islamic burial doesn't have a coffin, is how I recall. Or they have a coffin that will like decompose rapidly in like cemeteries that require them. I see. Okay, so it's just not preserving for like a hundred years. Exactly. And the idea, as I understand, as I was taught from my parents, let me put it that way. This way, I need to stop qualifying it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, here, the grave should be perpendicular to the direction of Qibla, so Mecca, so that the body placed in the grave without a coffin, lying on its right side, faces the Qibla. As I, the way I was taught was that like the idea is the body should decompose and return to the soil. That makes that makes a lot more sense to me. And do you know Judaism? What it would be? Uh, I don't. Let's see. Something that I did find very like I don't know about surprising, but maybe a little unexpected. Softer word is reading the Torah, uh, and then what I knew growing up Muslim. Judaism and Islam I found had a lot of similarities. Uh, that they were similar on things where they both differed from Christianity. I don't know enough about all three to uh, really say, like, net-net, they are more similar to each other than they are to Christianity, so I won't make that kind of a statement. But um, let me pull up my list, because at one point I actually made a list. The biggest one, though, is that uh, in Islam and Judaism, there is more of a, you have to prove yourself to God as being worthy, and less of a, uh, like, Mm. you are you know, loved unconditionally. And I think that's a very big difference. Another one um, is uh, depictions of God. They're very, like, in Islam and Judaism, as I understand it, it's, like, forbidden. Like, you, yeah. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Whereas in Christianity, it's... As I understand it, yeah. Which I actually, I understand now a little more than I think I used to. I used to think I was like, that makes no sense. Like, why would you not want... Why would you... Why would you not allow a depiction of, like... Allah or God in either of these religions while you know I come from like Hindu tradition which is like all about like uh, you know idol worship and stuff right and it's like it actually makes sense to me now well and both both make sense to me not allowing it makes sense because then you're putting a form on something that is essentially infinite mm. and you are not allowing it to be infinite um by trying to put like a human form to it. And actually that interpretation of God makes a lot more sense to me than any other interpretation. This idea of this like infinite force that can't be sort of interpreted by the human mind in a way that we would understand reality. That makes a lot more sense to me than the idea that like, oh, there's a guy in the sky, right? Like that part does, that part is like, seems way too simplistic for me. But I, I can see also why you would have the images because it helps people like, if your goal is to sort of help people connect to it and grow the religion, like, it actually makes sense to have the images because people just connect. I mean, think about when you share a tweet that's just text versus with, like, an image or whatever. It pops. So you want to have images. Like, you want you want videos and you want images. <laughs> uh, I've heard both sides of that for, like, friends who were non-religious who went to Catholic school. Some of them have said the images were, like, a great way to connect, and others said the images were alienating. Uh because they were like, yeah, I just don't believe mm. that like God would have like a big flowing beard and sort of look like you know somebody I know. And I can right. believe both. I mean, I grew up believing that you shouldn't make depictions, so it's very hard to like distance, have an unbiased take that's not colored by that. Um, right. I can't find this list. There were a few things. Um, if I find it, I will bring it up in the next episode. <laughs> 
You know, you just said something that I thought was interesting, and I had this tab open from earlier in the chat. One of the very secular, like, ideas of God that I've liked is that, like, no matter who you are, you believe in God. It's just a question of whether you call God God or you call God physics. And there's the uh, the passage I like for this is <laughs> like uh, the unmoved mover, uh, which is Aristotle's unmoved mover. And I want to just read like three sentences from it because it's so beautiful that you would almost think it's from scripture. And this is just Wikipedia. As is implicit in the name, the unmoved mover moves other things, but is not itself moved by any prior action. In book 12 of his Metaphysics, Aristotle describes, describes the unmoved mover as being perfectly beautiful, indivisible, and contemplating only the perfect contemplation, self-contemplation. That's just like a Wikipedia sentence. And I was like, wow, like that that's, on its own is actually like, you could dis- <laughs> dissect that. <laughs> like only the perfect contemplation, yeah. self-contemplation. That's beautiful actually for Wikipedia <laughs> especially. And then the not, it's... But the physics as God thing yeah. is interesting too. It's like, that's a... Yeah, that is actually a good point. Also, physics kind of has a similar, like, similar thing. If you go back, like, you look at, I mean, we talked about the beginning of life. You also talk about the Big Bang, right? The commonly accepted beginning of our universe. And you can, again, go one step up the food chain and say, well, what was that? Like, what came before that? And then, like, you know, and then you have, like, the sort of, like, continual expanding, contracting universe theory which I'm sure you've heard about, where it's like, you have a Big Bang, but before that, you previously had a previous universe that contracted down to, like, that minute size and then had a Big Bang, and that goes on in, in you know, in perpetuity, in, infinite, um, and every time is, like, a new iteration of the universe. But your question still goes back to, well, where the hell did that come from? Like, what is that? It, right? Yeah. It's like, you go back, you can keep going <laughs> one level up, uh, and in science, you can keep going one level up, and there's no real... I don't know. I, maybe there's a way to figure out what it is, but I guess we just haven't figured out what it is yet. Also, there's just no uh, satisfying answer. Haven't figured it out yet. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> very, very optimistic take. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's a very like pro. I think that's like the that's like the scientific argument is like, well, we don't know, but we can. We'll figure that out. That's is there like that is like the pro science argument. There might be things you can't figure out, right? And that's like. That's the, I don't want to call it the non-scientific argument, but like somebody who believes in the church of science would not. Maybe, maybe this is (laughs) stupid, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask it for science. I've never believed the whole like infinite universe thing because I'm just like, I can't get my head around the concept of an infinite universe. Like, and then I buy it even less when people are like, yeah, it's like expanding and contracting. And I'm like, well, inside of what? Right. Like, uh, and uh, is there is there a <laughs> supposed a answer to that? Like, is there like some impossible shape that like only a physics PhD could describe and understand that would allow something to be infinite, but also, yeah, I don't know if you get what I'm asking. Like, that kind of solves that paradox. No, I get what you're asking. No, I haven't seen anything. There's a wild, wild rabbit hole you can go down, which is super fun. And I recommend it just for fun, but I don't know. I don't know enough about this field to say like, oh, this is true or not, or this has any semblance of truth. It's a concept called biocentrism, which is basically like you've, you, I'm sure you've seen like the observer theory for uh, quantum physics, right? Where it's like, oh, if you're viewing something, it becomes a particle or a weight, right? It's not like dual. 
so this guy's the, the guy who wrote this book biocentrism his theory is basically like the universe is actually like not de- a defined thing until there's an observer like the observer is what makes it reality and it's almost like in a video game where it's like the video game is like rendering the game as the player is like going along right and it's kind of like i don't know it's a very interesting theory and then there's like a corollary to that which is actually more religious which is the universe exists like because the observer is like god essentially and now we're like living in this like real universe because there's there is an intelligence or a consciousness viewing that universe however this is like where it gets to me doesn't make sense then where did that come from yeah, yeah. right like then you got like you go back to the up the food chain problem of like where like where's the beginning of all this that's that's one thing that kind of gives me a little bit of like i don't know if comfort is the right word but like it lets me reason with it which is i do think like and i, I hopefully this is something that both people who are religious and not religious who are listening could agree with i think if a person was able to understand god to the point where they could like describe all these things that would almost make god less godly so like by definition you need a god who you cannot understand fully uh and that that's like a maybe it's circular and maybe that's just like tricks people play on themselves but it has at least let me reason with it no i don't think it's i don't think it's a trick you're playing on yourself i think the way like i have a very similar thought on it which is like that's above my pay grade basically (laughs) i'm not gonna learn that like there's no way i can ever figure this out because i'm not god right like i there was some movie that was like uh i don't remember what movie this is from but it was like this like old priest or old uh monk or something it was like i've only learned like two things in my entire life and person's like what he goes that there is a god and that I'm not him. Oh, uh... It was, like, it was like kind of profound. That was from Watchmen. That was from Watchmen. I didn't make that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, it's... yeah. I think, they, I think that may have been taken from some other movie, because I remember seeing this like an okay. older movie. It was like an older movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Watchmen is an interesting movie for... Yeah, but uh, it's... Like, God fear. I haven't seen it. It's not, like, a great... If... if the director's cut is really good. The theatrical cut is total garbage. But there's there's a line in there where, like, one of the characters, he's been, like, transformed by this, like, physics accident. And, uh, like, a nuclear accident or something. I don't know. I don't remember. It's been years. But they people start telling him he's, like, a god. And he's like, I don't believe there's a god. And if there is, I'm nothing like him. And it's, like, this, like, really dramatic line. And, like, you know, it's Zack Snyder. So it's the guy who did 300. So everything's, like, over the top. And anyway, I'm happy that your thing is not from... Th- from Watchmen. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It's from, uh, I don't know. I'll have to figure it out and we'll put it in the show notes. Um, I'll just search for the quote. I hope it's not from Watchmen. <laughs> I don't think it was. Because <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so how would I have seen the quote? <laughs> it can't be. All right. Anyway, I have to get right. going, but uh, this was awesome. Nat, we missed you. I hope you're here for Exodus. You know, Nat, we should this get Nat fun. to listen to this. And respond to it. And we'll have like a little like bonus episode of Nat being like, oh my god, these guys have no clue what they're talking about. If I was there, I would have answered this physics question. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, he had a yeah. lot of opinions on all these things that we've talked about. Um, yeah, so yeah, maybe we should do that. Nat, you got to do your homework <laughs> before the next episode. Um, all right. 
if you like the episode, definitely leave us a review. That helps a ton. Sharing it helps a ton. Uh, let us know what you thought on Twitter. We yep. are pretty active there. And also, I'm sure we got a lot of things wrong and yeah. stuff. So we're like tell us. It won't hurt very out of our depth on this one. So if anyone has expertise, somebody wants to even like hop on a call and talk to us about this, I would, I would be very, very interested. So yeah. That was all, I mean, it's also like, that's part of the fun of doing this great book. Yeah. It's just, it's almost like our own little book club. Like we're just like trying to figure things out. It's not like we're claiming we're experts in any of this yeah. stuff. So, which we definitely are not. We're, I, I am at least the first <laughs> a religious expert. <laughs> uh, yeah. But anyway, if you liked it, please leave a review, tell people about it. If you are using podcasting 2.0, you can send us some sats on fountain or breeze or some other wallet. We always like that. It helps keep us ad-free. Adil, anything else? It's a lot of fun. See you guys at Exodus. See you guys next time.